0: This is going to be a weird question, but have you ever eaten crickets? Well, what if you just ate cricket powder? Because crickets are one of the most sustainable and nutritious protein sources in the world. And EXO, that's E-X-O, is making them tasty with nutrient-dense cricket protein bars made with only natural ingredients, made by three Michelin star chefs, good for the environment and good for you. Head to exoprotein.com slash so smart to try four different bars for less than $10. That's exoprotein.com slash so smart. James Burke has launched a Connections app Kickstarter campaign, and I would love it if you would please, please contribute to this campaign to make this app a reality. I would like to have this in my life, and I think you would too. Head to knowledgediscoveries.com or jbconnectionsapp.com or head to Kickstarter and just type in James Burke, or just listen to the rest of this episode. We're going to interview James Burke, we're going to talk about connections and all sorts of other stuff right now. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 89.
1: The key to why things change, is the key to everything.
0: This is the voice of legendary science historian James Burke, and this is part of his closing statement in his documentary series, Connections, which, over the course of its ten episodes, completely rearranged how he looked at history, science, technology, communication, and change.
1: Today, the people who make things change, the people who have that knowledge are the scientists and the technologists who are the true driving force of humanity. And before you say, what about the Beethovens and the Michelangelos, let me suggest something with which you may disagree violently. That, at best, the products of human emotion, uh, art, uh, philosophy, politics, music, literature, are interpretations of the world that tell you more about the guy who's talking than about the world he's talking about. Second-hand views of the world made third-hand by your interpretation of them.
0: At this point in the conclusion of the entire series, James Burke holds up a photograph of amino acids. And you really can't tell what they are unless you'd seen this kind of photograph before. And this is what plants and animals and you are made of. Then he shows you a photograph of a Renaissance painting. And he asks... Comparing the two, how do they make you feel? What do they make you think?
1: Or you? This stuff's easier to take, isn't it? Understandable. Got people in it. This scientific knowledge is hard to take because it removes the reassuring crutches of opinion, ideology, and leaves only what is demonstrably true about the world. And the reason why so many people may be thinking about throwing away those crutches is because, thanks to science and technology, they have begun to know that they don't know so much. And that if they are to have more say in what happens to their lives, more freedom to develop their abilities to the full, they have to be helped towards that knowledge that they know exists and that they don't possess. And by help towards that knowledge. I don't mean give everybody a computer and say, help yourself. Where would you even start? No, I mean trying to find ways to translate the knowledge, to teach us to ask the right
0: questions. Now, Burke said all of that in 1978, and this notion has been one of his pursuits ever since, to help build a tool that would help us to make better sense of the enormous amount of information that he knew one day Would be at our fingertips. You may have noticed that we tend to seek confirmation more than we do information. That's been the subject of so many of our episodes. And it's because the default way the brain goes about seeking new information is that you notice something in the natural environment, you don't understand how it works, you have an assumption, a guess, a hypothesis, you go to check to see if you're correct. And with Google or something similar, you find that confirmation in a few seconds, and then you end your pursuit. Burke knew that's how the brain works, and he predicted we would need better tools in the future than just search alone. And this month, he launched a Kickstarter campaign to help create one, an app that searches connectively and produces something Google and social media often do not. Surprises, anomalies, unexpected results, the weird combination of ideas you didn't think belong next to each other, all in the same style as his documentary series, books, and other projects. Now, we'll talk all about that in a minute. In fact, Burke is the guest on this episode, and he's going to tell you about the app and the Kickstarter campaign and how you can help contribute to make this thing that I want to exist, exist. But more on all that in a minute. I would like to take a second to just talk about Connections. Connections and Burke's other series, The Day the Universe Changed, mm, together they were enormously influential on me and many other people that I know. Many people who write about science, they can tell you very plainly, this was the thing that excited me about science communication. It originally came out on the BBC in 1978, but it later came out on PBS in the United States and was rebroadcast many times throughout the years on the Science Channel, the Learning Channel and other places like that. It was the most watched documentary series ever when it came out. And that's because it was revolutionary, partly in its presentation. Burke spoke right to the audience, had fun with the topics, appeared in the places he described and set up accurate reenactments. And in the end, he went to 19 countries and 150 locations over the course of 14 months. And it's so fun to watch, it holds up. But more revolutionary was his alternate view of history. Before Burke, history was taught in a linear fashion with stories that had obvious beginnings that led right where we assume the players in those stories were headed. Inventions were seen as the result of purpose-driven insights. And the drama of invention, the drama of history, was seeing people solve a puzzle or overcome a challenge with the end results in mind. For many people, history before connections was filled with great men and geniuses. Well, Burke blew all that apart by suggesting... Great insights often took place because of anomalies and mistakes, because people were pursuing one thing, but it led somewhere surprising or was combined with some other object or idea they could never have imagined by themselves. Innovation took place in the spaces between disciplines. That's what Burke said. When people outside of intellectual and professional silos, unrestrained by a categorical or linear view, synthesized the work of people still trapped in those boxes, who, because of those boxes, had no idea what each other was up to, and therefore just could not predict the trajectory of their own disciplines, and much less the trajectory of history. In one of my favorite examples, Burke demonstrated how you could connect beer, soda water, perfume, work on malaria cures, oil refinement, and a bunch of other stuff into an invention that changed the world forever, changed your life forever. Now, as Connections demonstrates, you could start this story anywhere, but Burke starts with a chemist named Joseph Priestley, who helped discover oxygen, and that's what he's usually famous for, but he also, in 1767, developed the method for carbonating water. And that led to the fizzy drinks that you enjoy today. Priestley was studying putrefaction and what roles gases might play in all that, especially what was called in his time fixed air, those fumes that sit on top of a vat of beer while it ferments. Now, these fumes were known to be toxic to mice and rats who wandered into them, so people knew they killed stuff, and Priestley wrote how fermentation must prevent putrefication and he thought there was a connection and wanted to capture some of that air from this process in his words to impregnate the water with the fermentation air through a system that placed his water into the air above the beer vat until it became bubbly the result was soda water and as no one could have predicted it became a huge hit in the newly popular health resorts replacing sulfur water that was popular there before you were drinking a sort of antiseptic and fighting The septic and noxious elements of the natural world was a big deal at the time. Medicine was particularly concerned with bad air, malaria, miasma, stuff like that. So keep that in mind. Around the same time, work in the industry that produces automation for sewing machines and saws was looking for ways to improve the efficiency and to reduce the size of its engines. Here's Burke explaining how they worked.
1: You had a cylinder with a piston in it. As the piston went down, it sucked in a mixture of town gas and air. Then the piston came back up again and compressed the mixture. You lit the mixture, it exploded, it pushed the piston down again. The piston came back up yet again, this time pushing the exhaust fumes out. And then when it went down again, it brought in a new, fresh mixture. And the cycle continued. There were two things wrong with that. One, it weighed a tonne. And two, you couldn't go anywhere with it because you had to stay connected to a supply of town gas. What Daimler and Maybach did was to replace the town gas air mixture with a byproduct of oil called gasoline, which explodes easily. Too easily.
0: Daimler and Maybach made an engine that heated gasoline to help produce those volatile fumes and then piped those fumes into an even hotter chamber where they exploded.
1: Now, the strength of the explosion depends on the mixture. And you have set that pretty well once and for all with this air valve here and then you trundle off at your one and only speed.
0: But then, here's where things get weird. Remember that soda water and the bad air?
1: Priestley's work on various kinds of air and soda water and so on excited a great deal of interest among the medical circles. And they decided that bad air caused disease. And in order to get rid of the bad air, they turned to scent sprays to fumigate places like hospital
0: rooms. Those sprays didn't just puff perfume mist into the air, but also the new antiseptics coming into popularity at the time.
1: Now, the scent spray works very simply. You use this bulb here to puff air through a tiny nozzle. In the middle of that nozzle, it narrows for a moment. At that precise point, the air speeds up and its pressure drops. At that point, you inject a jet of perfume. Now, because the air is at low pressure, the perfume atomizes into tiny droplets and you get a spray like that. And that is precisely what Maybach did with his invention with the gasoline. This is it. It's called a carburetor.
0: The carburetor allowed precise regulation of the gasoline mixture and extremely efficient, tiny explosions.
1: And that's why it was the carburetor that gave the Daimler Motor Company its head start over every other rival.
0: And with that, the automobile industry was launched, and refinement of those ideas eventually led to Henry Ford, the Toyota Prius, the Tesla, the interstate highway system, and 1.3 million people dying in car accidents every year. But also, whatever happens next with driverless vehicles and Uber, and on and on it goes. Cars led to so many unexpected results. drive throughs drive-in movies, car culture. That is the whole idea behind connections because the automobile in this view wasn't invented by anyone. The story of the carburetor is the same for every other piece of the car. Your modern vehicle is made of thousands of parts, each one the combination of thousands of ideas, and nearly every one of those ideas originally had nothing to do with automobiles. For instance, the gasoline industry did not invent the automobile, neither did the perfume industry or the soda water industry or the engine industry or any individual within those industries. And by extension, that means No one person predicted it or set out to create it from scratch. Suppose, for instance, you'd come across
1: Volta's electric pistol in the 18th century. What would you have made of it? An electric spark jumps across the gap between those two wires and causes gases inside to explode. It was supposed to tell you whether or not air was healthy. How could you ever have foreseen that it would end up as a spark plug in a car? In there with all the other unforeseeable bits, the block that began life as Newcomen's mind-reading pump, or the carburetor that uses a system for atomizing fuel that started life as a scent spray, or the gearing system that began as a water wheel. The whole lot comes together just like a jigsaw. And that's one of the general things that you can say about how difficult it is to second-guess trends in invention. Because with a jigsaw, If you haven't got all the bits, you don't know what the picture
0: is. Connections had so many other examples like this. It showed that telecommunications were the result of the ripple effects that took place after the introduction of the stirrup at the Battle of Hastings. The Black Plague led to a surplus of linens, which led to paper, which led to the printing press, which led to books, which led to the spread of knowledge. Champagne led to empty bottles, which led to preservation, which led to canned food, which led to refrigeration, which led to avoiding spoilage, which led to the discovery of how to store gases at low temperatures, which combined with the thermos, which has its own lineage of connections, led to the systems we use to launch rockets and go to the moon and beyond. A change in climate led to colder weather, which led to the invention of the chimney, which led to separate rooms and the very notion of privacy itself. Connections not only change our technological world, but also our social world. And this never stops. In fact, it's getting faster, messier, And more chaotic. So what do we do about it? I don't know. But maybe a
1: good start would be to recognize within yourself the ability to understand anything, because that ability is there, as long as it's explained clearly enough. And then go and ask for explanations. And if you're thinking right now, what do I ask for? Ask yourself if there's anything in your life you want changed. That's where to start.
0: My name is David McCraney. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. And our guest on this episode is science historian James Burke. We're going to talk about his new app, which aims to bring connective thinking to the modern era. We're also going to talk about change. We're going to talk about prediction. We're going to talk about connections. We're going to talk about models of reality. All of that after this commercial break. Like so many of you, I am always looking for ways to keep learning, become more aware about the world around us. And that's why I started this podcast. That's why I'm talking to James Burke in this episode. That's why The Great Courses Plus continues to be a perfect resource for the kind of people who like the kind of stuff that I put out. Unlimited access to a large library of engaging video lectures awaits you at thegreatcoursesplus.com. It's presented by top-winning professors, a wide variety of fascinating courses to choose from, covering everything from scientific discoveries, major historical events, even photography, and more. New courses are added all the time. I recommend right now watching The Art of Critical Decision-Making. It explores how indecision can paralyze us within our culture of yes, no, and maybe, and it offers great tools to improve your own decision-making processes. With The Great Courses Plus, stream as many different lectures as you want, anytime, anywhere, from your smartphone, tablet, laptop, or TV. I want you to sign up for The Great Courses today because they're giving my listeners a wonderful offer. This is it, an entire month of unlimited access to all of their lectures for free. That means you could watch the entire lecture series for The Art of Critical Decision Making for free. All of these courses, like procedural justice, creativity and brainstorming, the curious inability to decide, normal accident theory, normalizing deviance, you can figure out what all that stuff means by listening to this lecture, watching it on video, watching it on an app with this free offer. Start your free month now by going to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. Squarespace. If you want to make a website, that's how you do it. This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace. And whether you need a landing page, a beautiful gallery, a professional blog, or an online store, all of that is included with your Squarespace website. You get a free domain, custom domain, and they make adding that domain to your site simple. If you sign up for a year, you will get a custom domain free for that Year. You can add and arrange your content and features with the click of a mouse. It's a simple, intuitive process. They have seamless commerce tools from nationally recognized brands to your favorite local shops. Squarespace is trusted by hundreds of thousands of savvy shop owners. Inventory, order processing, custom emails, all in one intuitive interface with 24-7, seven-day-a-week customer support. If you can't figure something out, if you want to do something interesting and special, someone will help you anytime Day or night. Start your free trial today at squarespace.com and enter the offer code SO SMART to get 10% off of your first purchase. Squarespace, set your website apart. And now we return to our program. As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, the Washington Post said that James Burke has one of the most intriguing minds in the Western world. And I agree. Burke covered the moon landings for the BBC, not only spending time with the astronauts before they went to the moon, but was live on national television explaining to all of the people of the UK what they were seeing on that historic day. He has since created several documentary series, including Connections and the Day the Universe Changed, and written many books based on exploring networks of human knowledge and how we interact with them. His latest idea is an app that would allow you to explore Wikipedia using his connective model of exploration. So let's pick his brain. James Burke, you, have, you are, uh, you are part of a new project. Now you have a Kickstarter going and there is an app on the horizon. Uh, if you could very briefly, Uh, briefly just sort of help people understand what is going to how is the. how is this app how do you see this app being used by the average person
2: well okay let me say first of all that the 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 website to go to if you want to find out much more than i'm going to say is jbconnectionsapp.com basically this app allows people to take the kind of approach that i am taking in my knowledge web which is a relatively small structure Twenty-eight hundred people linked about thirty thousand ways, and apply that kind of approach to the the mega structure of Wikipedia, which, as I understand it, contains at least five million nodes. Um, and the idea there is that you the, the web the the app allows you to go into Wiki and search for stuff, so that if you want to see, for example, where uh, I don't know Mozart or uh, the battleship Potemkin, or, or the paintings of Salvador Dalí, lead you. If you start with the, any one of those app, those, those nodes, uh, it, it it searches Wikipedia and offers you a choice of a number of places to go to from there. And if you go there, then it does the same thing again, and it goes until you decide you want to stop. Or you can say, well, I'll tell you where I want to start, and you tell me where you want to stop. Or it says. Or you say to it, I don't know where I want to start, but I'd love to find interesting ways of showing what led to, and then you tell. So it's a way, in a sense, of turning the fairly linear material in Wikipedia. That is to say, much of what you find in Wikipedia tends to be be connections between people that you would have expected, such as, you know, chemists, knowing chemists, and so on. And to turn that much more into this kind of interactive knowledge web thing that I've built... And if that were to happen that would be intriguing, I would hope enrichment of what wikipedia offers but so basically that's it in a nutshell
0: well i I played with the um the preliminary version of this sort of the beta version of this and i, I typed in Charles Darwin and in a few links I made it all the way to uh um frankenberry cereal uh, <laughs> and and it started uh it it made there it it went through um natural selection and that that went through, through a health service and the health service went to the advent of gelatin. And then gelatin went, found its way to Betty Crocker. And eventually I got there. Um, so it's, it already, I felt very, I felt, I felt like a, like I was thinking connectively. It, it, I would never have those two ideas would never have been placed side by side in my mind in any other way. And I, um, I, so, so I see the benefit of it uh, immediately. I'm wondering, um, what would you think would be the most fruitful way to, to use it? Because if you, anyone who's played around with hyperlinks knows that you can, you can go off onto a tangent very quickly that doesn't, it might not, it might not seem on the surface to be uh, anything more than a chain of coincidences. Um, how, what is a way do you think to use this thinking connectively through this app in a, in the most uh, beneficial, fruitful way?
2: Well, I've been told to say this before I answer that question, and that is that you won't use it at all unless you give 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 the app a few bucks for, for it to get off the
0: <laughs> Okay, app. yeah. Yes, um, yes.
2: Well, I, I think it depends what you're doing it for. I mean, if you're doing it just for fun and silliness, if you like, as the same is true the my knowledge web, you just go out and look at who this person is connected with and you just go wherever you like. uh some are straightforward, as I said, chemists to chemists. Uh, some are not so straightforward, and some are downright weird. I, I've always found when I was building the knowledge web and, and reading in widening circles around a person to see the kind of contacts they made, the people they knew, the influences they they caused or, or suffered. Quite often the most interesting things happened. If you went to an anomaly, an out, an. Out, an art writer, if you like. So that, for example, if you went to an engineer and all his pals, as you'd expect, were engineers, and here is one who is a painter or here is one who who, uh, who flies an airplane, or, I don't know, something that is an anomaly, go there, because the whole process of innovation and change and prediction and handling innovation, which is why I started the K-Web and this app in the first place, the whole process of innovation tends, in general, to be a surprise. It tends to be when things come together in an unexpected way and link something, and here I think it is quite important, link something you know to something you didn't know. I mean, you might have known of it, but you didn't know it in in connection with the thing you knew. And that tends to be the the event that causes the kind of innovation that can cause surprises that are sometimes uh, not necessarily positive all the time. Because, I mean, the whole secret of success is, is correct prediction, whether you put one foot in front of the other or make it to managing director.
0: Well, you know, it, it, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on um, it, this. When, when I when, I, when I, I feel like I want to think connectively and I think that I uh, and I feel like I, I understand the drawbacks of linear um, thinking right. and, and linear and thinking of history in a linear way, but I feel like I can't help myself, but to do it. And, um, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on why that seems to have been how I was socialized and why, how I was indoctrinated by my, by my schooling and by society in general. Like what, why, what are the benefits of thinking connectively versus this other version, the great men and linear thinking and all that? And why, why are the two, uh, seem to be in, you know, competition with one another or in opposition to one another, um, what are the benefits of it and why why haven't we switched to that system more uh, readily and more often? And, and what are your thoughts there?
2: Well, I think it must be said above all that the, it appears that the brain works connectively uh, it, it appears that the brain is not divided up into little boxes in you know One mark chemistry one mark history one mark money one mark living with my wife blah blah But that the brain is enormously interactive I mean V-Day, any time you think of something which suddenly reminds you of something else for no apparent reason whatsoever. It's because it looks as if everything in the brain is interconnected. So that was my original argument anyway for putting a the knowledge there. The business of thinking linearly, some people think that in the – well, when Columbus came back and said, hey, guys, <laughs> Japan is not a straight shot across the Atlantic. I found somewhere else. And from that somewhere else, we started seeing animals and plants and people and all kinds of stuff that has never been seen before. And most important of all, none of which were in Aristotle, and Aristotle was the final authority on everything at the time, then all bets were off. And there was a kind of intellectual panic, in a sense. And two or three people tried suggestions about how to handle this problem, and probably the one that had the biggest effect was Descartes, René Descartes, the... The the French military engineer and thinker who came up with an idea for, as it were, thinking stuff, thinking up stuff that you could trust that wouldn't let you down, even if it were something you'd never come across before. And what he said, was, to make it grossly simple, he said, reduce every problem to its smallest individual component parts. And you'll see how they fit together and therefore how it works. And therefore, if it goes wrong, how to fix it Um, and think above all in this methodical way. And his reductionism, reduce everything to its smallest individual component part, and method is really what laid the ground for what we now call scientific thinking. And it was there in the first place so that you wouldn't make any mistakes by just going on gut instinct or something which could be dangerously wrong. And it proved enormously successful. I mean, the name of the game in the 17th century was what was called useful knowledge, knowledge that could improve people's lives, and it sure did. Uh, because what it did was to say, look, concentrate in enormous detail on what it is you want to think through and keep concentrating until you think you've really got to the end and then still do it. Uh, What that did was to spawn specialism of all kinds. Mm. I mean, there are thousands of disciplines now in what we know, and each one of them is inhabited by some PhD or other who spent his or her entire life on nothing else. And as some people have said, Learning more and more about less and less. And the problem there is, of course, there's nothing wrong with linear thinking until it operates the way Descartes suggested, which means you end up with disciplines which are so disciplined, so specialist that even their the language of their interactions and their daily work are the language is totally incomprehensible to anybody who isn't a member of that group, which is fine until they turn out something, it changes your life. <laughs> And then the question is, why didn't I see it? How didn't I second guess it? Well, the answer is I couldn't, because it was inside this specialist silo until the day it burst out and changed the world. I mean, who could know that some, some, some meteorologist who was trying to create a rainbow set up a thing called a cloud chamber. And when he stripped it of all the dirt and stuff in the air and so, and so on, it still produced whatever it was. And when he showed this to a pal of his called Rutherford, Rutherford said, my God, that means the atom can be split. And bingo, you have the bomb. Uh, who could have foreseen from that guy's meteorological work if you weren't, I mean, even if you were a meteorologist, you still might not have got it. So there's nothing wrong with linear thinking if it gets you to the bus stop on time to catch the bus, but it, it, makes it, it makes it harder than ever to foresee what's coming out of those silos, especially as we develop means of communicating with each other more and more more easily, especially when two or three silos get in contact with each other and produce something which is even more difficult to predict, because the great American mathematician, uh, Norbert Weiner, once said, innovation comes in the main from the no man's land between the disciplines, where nobody goes. Uh, And that's that's where it comes, that's where the stuff comes from. And that's why it's so hard to second guess.
0: We, you know, I, uh, this this idea that you that, that you're presenting here with uh more and more specialization which leading to uh, uh change coming from places that were that from which we're not we're not familiar we don't have daily interactions with even if we're an expert in one thing we're not an expert in, in in the other thing and then that leading to greater and greater change and more change and more rapid change and more common change um uh also those two things together lead to a very unpredictable world even though we we one it, 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 it seems like one of our main um, uh, obsessions is to is predict is trying to come up with a, a prediction of what's going to happen next and to feel confident in that we know where things are going and we keep being um, uh, we keep being slapped across the face with with the fact that that uh, we're not very great at that where, uh, hmm. and um, um, I'm interested in what you have this this app that you're um, that this Kickstarter uh, project is attempting to produce is yeah. a great example of something we've talked about uh, even on this show before about uh handing over some things to machines handing over some things to algorithms and artificial intelligence and as a way to help us um think more clearly or think more um if not more clearly to get more out of our thinking than without them i know that there's um there are people called centaurs you may have heard of them the um uh whenever um uh kasparov was was beaten by deep blue um hmm. they developed uh he said that he if he had, had just had what if he had just had access to what deep blue had ac- access to he could have beaten the computer because he felt he was still a better chess player than the computer and so he uh, they actually developed a chess league of people who use computers on the side, and they tend if when they are pitted against pure machines, they tend to defeat the machines uh, more often than a machine would defeat the machine. And so, people plus machines um, seem to be this seems to be a really great way to sort of solve some of these early problems we're having with this uh, vast. Uh, this, this attempt to swallow the ocean of um, <clears throat> of knowledge that we've created and I'm wondering, uh, you know, how you see this uh, I, uh, idea of of coupling um, artificial intelligence and algorithms and machines and however you want to look at that computation with this cross disciplinary approach and this connective way of thinking. I think that, you know, as your app is part of that, how do you see all of these things fitting together?
2: I think the first thing to be said is that we have, since Neolithic times, there's always been somebody saying, What about these damn machines? You know, the first time a plow was used, somebody said, What's wrong with sticking it in the ground by your hand? You know, what, what are you doing? You're going to, you know, you're going to ruin the neighborhood. And they did. And people lived better for it. And it must be said, of course, that, that you know, the whole reductionist thing and the development of scientific disciplines and so on has ended up making us the richest, most healthy people in history. That said, uh, I, I would like to believe, indeed, no, I do believe that the human mind has one almost undefeatable talent, and that is for open-ended curiosity. Um, we seem to be, if I may dare, dare use this word in this context, programmed not to arrive at the end of thinking. In other words, to to even if all we do is daydream, um, we don't we don't have a, 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 the program doesn't begin and end. Uh, if even if I say I'm going to catch the bus at five o'clock, and I run to catch the bus because my, my watch helps me get there on time, blah blah blah, that does not stop me thinking about what would happen if I didn't catch the bus, or what happened if the guy got a heart attack on the bus, or what happened if there was a a dangerous maniac on the bus. A million other things going on inside this buzz in my head, while I am doing something apparently finite. Catch the bus. Now, my argument is ultimately, no matter how big the algorithm is, ultimately the machine catches the bus. And it does it brilliantly well. It does it so well that we are the healthiest, wealthiest people on the planet, uh, since history began. The marriage of the two strikes me to be an inordinately valuable stage to have arrived at. Um, We are now beginning to have algorithms that will handle massive amounts of big data in ways that should make it possible for us to do something we've never been able to do before, which is get outside the box we live in. And we live in a box because we have to have some kind of conformity in order to run our societies the way we want to, with the tools we have at at any one time. Those tools are now beginning to present themselves as unimaginably large in their scale, and they, they present the possibility that we might be able to, to see the entirety of what we want to do with our lives, or what it is our aims and objectives are, what it is that makes life difficult or marvellous for each of us and all of us, and... What we want the future to be like, and then use the algorithms available to say, well, here's how these things could come about if you'd like, and present the alternative and the the the, the, uh, the alternatives available and allow us to choose what we want. And then say, Well, if you choose that, there will be these ripple effects. Do you accept that and go on, maybe even iteratively iteratively forever, but at least present a vastly more meaningful choice in our lives than the present. Uh, idiocy that 350 million people should be represented by two political parties or, in, in, <laughs> in each case, 56 million people in, <laughs> represented by two. I mean, there are more choices among 350 50 million people than two. That much has become obvious. So I'm, I'm extremely positive about this future marriage of, of brain and machine. Um, people people have worried about this for a long time because, like Orwell in, in 1984, you know the machine is a pretty crude object, and you either do do what it says, and maybe it probably doesn't even give you a choice. You do what it says, or you're in trouble. These new machines will not be like.
0: Well, so this is a great segue into, into, of course, my great fascination these last few years, and um, and you have been in this. You've covered this territory so much with um, the day the universe changed. Uh, I know us, some of the people. Uh, I know the, you know they feel like they find the day the universe changed is a very guiding force in their lives, as far as a way it was restructured. It restructured the way they um, they uh, interpret new information and think about progress and change and. Uh, there's a topic in, in in your in your book and in your series. You you sort of settle on a, this term called balanced anarchy, <laughs> and yes. uh, and you're the most opti- You're so incredibly optimistic, um, and um, I, it's it's something I think it's worth talking about right now because I know, I know in in our current uh, societies, our current political situations, a lot of people are um, they have oh, yeah. the failure of prediction has caused a lot of people to feel. Uh, that they had been complacent leading up to these last few uh, this last year or two and um, it's causing people to um, question how and how valuable it is that we have so much control over the information that goes into our brains um, and I feel like you have through throughout your career you have been very uh, optimistic about this pr- this prospect and you you not only did you predict it but you predicted that it would be that it would lead to um, just it would lead to a, a very interesting and uh a it would lead to a future that would be even more uh enlightened and prosperous than it is now i mean it it, it has that prospect and i'm wondering um the there was um there has been this tendency to look at i know that right now facebook and twitter are both uh concerned about this idea of fake news and they're all con- they're concerned about the idea of people uh, because of their confirmation bias, lo- searching the internet for things that, that only uh, enforce, their, only enhance their existing beliefs. And the people are, um, they are building up their preconceived notions to be even more stronger than they were before and they're not being as challenged. And I'm wondering, um, what do you think, considering all of that, the unfolding of the things that you have predicted in the past. How, uh, what, how, what would you say to that sort of pessimist, pessimistic view? What do you? How do you see it? Well, before
2: I get clobbered for being a Pollyanna optimist, it should be said that pessimists jump out of the window and are no longer involved. <laughs> so that's one, that's one good reason for being an optimist. The second is, I think, when people think that this is misplaced optimism, I think they're missing a vital point. Up until now. The way people have reacted to what is happening has been straitjacketed by the um, numbers of ways they can express themselves and the um, number of choices they have been presented with. If the choice you have ahead of you about how to run the country is two choices, then that's v- very unlikely to do other than to shove you into one camp or another and then conform to whatever camp you've been shoved into or you've chosen to be in. As if human life consisted of two choices so the first thing it seems to me about machines and about powerful algorithms using big data is that it will enable people to think more, to be presented with more uh, facts and it, 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 it is always possible to stay ahead of the hacker uh, Algorithms, an algorithm will ultimately be able to say look this is very seductive but it's not true or this is very seductive, but it's on the the available analysis of absolutely every relevant data, this is not true. Now, today we say, double-check your sources from this newspaper or that television channel. But double-check your sources. Is it back to this famous word? number, Number two, you know, find out if they're telling the truth or not. On the basis of what, we ask you? Well, the answer is on the basis of almost no evidence because in any case, how would you get it except by going to the place where the two liars are presenting their two lies, i.e. <laughs> the, the present state of of, of, the, of the internet. But I think I think in a fairly short period of time, algorithms are going to be are going, to, are going to multiply enorm- enormously the, the ways, the means of checking on the kind of material that you can trust or not trust, the kind of material that is, as far as we know, balanced and fair and factual. Mm-hmm. And well, we, then we have the problem is what is,
0: what is, what is the truth? In every <laughs> yeah, right. That's where, that's where I'm headed. And, uh, you, this is, um, yes, it, that presents the big problem of, okay, uh, how do I determine what is true and what is not? And now I'd like to talk about some of the ideas that you, you've put forth in that, uh, arena. You, you've, um, you've said before and i'm quoting you now quoting you now you are what you know and when we observe nature we see what we want to see according to what we believe we know about it at the time and not only um what we think it's uh our definitions at any given moment uh to constrain what we think and what we can think and so if you could uh, elaborate on that for people who may that may find that not just challenging but completely new
2: well Dear, dear, this is very complicated, and I'll try and make it really really stupidly simple for myself as well. Um, If you didn't believe that when you put one foot in front of the other, you would stay uh, balanced and stay upright and, and keep moving, you wouldn't do it. You would do nothing. You would stand still. So you have to have a context that you think you understand well enough to act in a way that will not endanger your survival in whatever form we're talking about. So everybody lives within a box in that sense. We all live within a context of what we believe the world is about. And that world can be a a nationalist world where you believe your country, what did he say, right or wrong. Uh, It could be a world in which you're conducting war because you believe it the right thing to do, and so on and so forth. Um, At any one time in history, there are certain facts that we use to create the structure within which we live. And those facts change. At one point, we thought that the Earth was the center of the cosmos until Copernicus told us otherwise. And that was a real mess because if the Earth wasn't the center of everything, then it wasn't the center of God's attention. And if we weren't the center of God's attention, help, you know. (laughs) Uh, On the other hand, sometimes the box has... Unexpectedly positive outcomes. Columbus crossed the Atlantic for Japan, knowing before he left there was nothing on the way, and then bingo, he bumped into you, that is to say, America. So sometimes uh, that kind of shock doesn't necessarily end up being a bad thing. But at any one time, you live within a context, because you have to live within a context. And the matter of whether it's the final truth or not is neither here nor there, really, because what living inside the box does is give you a set of rules by which to live and presumably to cooperate with other members of people living in the same box so that you can all live according to the same rules and achieve stability and through that achieve the final thing that we all want, uh, a stronger chance that you will survive well. Uh, change tends to come along and nibble at the edges of these things. Very rarely does change turn society entirely upside down because we're very good at managing change, I think. We're very good at adapting bits and pieces of how people behave to suit the, the novelty, the new, the, new, the new form of reality. So all in all, I'm fairly positive about this.
0: You mentioned as you close out the day the universe changed that you, you see a future where when we all have access to a lot more knowledge than we have now, and that access is very easy, uh, and, and there's a lot of literacy for how to get at that knowledge that there will start to become a—you saw a world where there wouldn't just be a trade-off between one dominant worldview and another, but there would be a whole lot of worldviews, like there, almost as many as there were people. And I'm wondering what you think about have, have we reached that world, or or, and how will we how will we manage that better as we go forward, um, in in um, as opposed to this system of paradigm shift.
2: As for whether or not we have arrived at the point you discussed, um, I, 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 I don't know. We're not there now. No. I mean, what I've, I think I've described it as balanced anarchy because I use that terminology because it appears to be anarchic. Because to our old fashioned views, uh, you know, to have more than two choices sounds like chaos, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. So um, balanced anarchy is what I gave it as a, as a name. Um, I, I really don't see. When the world, as it will be within, let's say, 50 or 60 years, is is provided for by uh, nanofabricators that make everything you could possibly need from dirt, air, and water, pretty much. And there is no more money, no more work, no more social mores, no more values, no more anything, really, except a life that is what you want it to be, given that you're not allowed to make anybody else's life bad as a result, which is not too difficult if There is nothing to make you criminally uh, active towards these people because they have something you don't, because there will be no such thing. If you want anything, you can have it. I think at that point, with machines, let's use an old-fashioned term, machines doing everything else that we need to be done, whether it's keeping the climate clean or keeping the local area unpolluted or whatever, blah, 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 that leaves us free of all the flim flam that we've been involved in for the last you know 35,000 years the business <laughs> of staying alive having a job getting a, getting some money uh, buying what we need to stay alive but when all that is gone in 50 60 years time why not balance anarchy? because the only thing the only thing that that we'll need to do really is to decide what we want to do with our brains what we want to do with our our thinking lives as opposed to our physical doing lives, that I think is going to be the greatest social challenge since the beginning when it, when it comes along in 50 or 60 years' time. The, so the, I think we're that close.
0: The 50 or 60 years, wow. I mean, I've, I've been listening to people, you know, talk about the coming age of, um, of autonomous cars and, you know, driverless vehicles and, and how that's going to affect the, the trucking, the, the, um, you know, the, not the first, the first, the, you know, the trucking industry and then second, you know, how we get from here to there and then ownership and how we think about cars in general and all this kind of stuff. And they're talking about, they're talking about 20 years away, you know? And so the idea, the idea of this, uh, end of scarcity that you've, you've mentioned before that you're working on now in your, in your new project, um, Being sixty years out is going to i that is going to scare people <laughs> I think some people are worried about you know the the robots are going to take our jobs and what am I going to do then um, uh, so I think it's encouraging that you're not not only are you saying that it's closer than a lot of people think but you have a very optimistic view of it
2: well as I said as i've said many times pessimist jumps out of the window um, <laughs> I, I, it, it, it's um i'm not pessimist I'm not optimistic in the sense that I think we we are, at, up until now, with this concentration of what's going to happen in the next 10, 15, 20 years, how do we, do, how do we solve these terrible problems which we have of pollution and, and starvation and blah, blah, blah. I mean, these are temporary problems, and we should be thinking like hell about what we're going to do when, the, when society could fall apart with the, with the arrival of the nanofabricator that can produce anything you want for nothing. I mean, give it some thought, and, you know, the mind boggles. We are nowhere near preparing for it. How to behave in those circumstances mm. at any level, from the individual up to up to global. So uh, it's it's not an entirely Pollyanna view I'm taking, but it's going to happen, and the sooner we start to think about it, the better.
0: I, you know, I think this has been on a lot of people's minds, at least in in, in, in American culture, because we've seen so much rapid social change here uh, as of late. Uh, uh, same-sex marriage and and um, um, you know, uh, marijuana and uh, uh, smoking norms have changed so quickly just within you know just within a decade. Smoking smoking has become completely taboo. Um, and then on a longer time timescale, uh, we've had, of course, America has all these things that, from from prohibition, women's suffrage, abortion rights, uh, uh, civil rights. Um, I'm wondering uh, what your thoughts are on, uh, even though this seems. I guess we're I'm I'm, I'm stepping backwards, I'm stepping away from from what we just talked about, just to, because I want to make sense of something from from recent from our recent uh, changes we've seen, is um, those the pace of change, uh, when it comes to social change often seems gradual. Um, but in, for people who have, um, uh, who have just lived through a lot of social changes, those changes have seemed to be, uh, very rapid, almost as if they turned around and everything was different. And of course, for the people who were involved in those social changes, it didn't seem quite as, uh, slow, but, um, taken along you know measured on on a on a graph the the political scientists i've spoken to say you know a lot of these social changes are the fastest they've ever recorded and i'm wondering what your thoughts are on on what would contribute to those being so rapid
2: well i think primarily it's a matter of perception i would argue i'd say that that the processes by which we have had these changes recently whether it's same sex marriages or interracial interracial marriages or religious uh, uh, fracas, um, it seems to me that the advent of modern telecommunications has shoved this stuff in our face. So first of all, we never used to know that it existed. If some people in a certain part of the country decide to live in a certain way, never use motor cars and so on, we don't mind because they're off in the countryside somewhere or whatever. All of a sudden, all this stuff, since the advent of television and radio, and now above all online, is right in your face. And it seems suddenly you have to make choices very rapidly about whether or not you want to agree to have these people. And we're back to the famous two again, you know, (laughs) do you want or don't you want. Um, uh, This, it seems to me, is a product of this transitional period we're going through, whereby people are getting the tools, I mean that by that I mean the Internet, with which to quickly learn stuff that they would never heard of before and, and also to express their opinion on it. But the basic social institutions behind all this, uh, marriage, law, finance, uh, uh, medicine, uh, employment, law, blah, blah, blah. These, are in- these institutions have been set up at different times in history to handle particular kinds of problems. And have remained with us because they've been trustworthy and they work well in an old world where everything happened uh, at snail's pace. And all of a sudden, we have institutional views, snails face institutional views, being faced by these tremendously fast, apparently fast, perceived to be fast uh, changes.
0: Well, this leads to a, a big question that I've wanted to ask you for, for a while now. And that is, um, you know, I, I I encounter a lot of people who find uh, – since since we spend a lot more time interacting with people who have beliefs – that aren't quite like our own, we're, we're more, I think we spend a lot more time, thanks to the internet, uh, in contact with people whose ideas and ideologies challenge our ideas, not ideolo- ideologies. And there's a lot of frustration in, in those interactions where people think they just can't change people's minds. But it's been my experience um, that despite resistance to change, uh, beliefs can be, uh, can't, I mean, we, we only need to look, into the past and see how how fungible beliefs can be. We we tend to change, uh, out socially we tend to change as as our knowledge grows and as uh, some things are incompatible or, with others and incommensurable with others. So I'm um wondering from your uh, perspective and based on your expertise, is there any pattern to how a group of people realize they're wrong or, you know, quote unquote wrong, however you want to, to define that. Uh, when it comes to this macro level of social change and cause there tends to be these pockets of, of social change, there are stops and starts, but the result always is that if you were to go back, if you were to get into a time machine and go back into the past, you would find yourself, uh, in the minority <laughs> versus yeah. the majority opinion. And if you were to go back into the past and just talk to yourself as an individual, you'd find that you probably disagree a great deal about a whole lot of stuff. And there's that Max Planck quote that says he said that truth uh, doesn't triumph by convincing its opponents and making them see the light, but rather its opponents eventually die and a new generation grows up that is familiar with it. So he believed that you know it had to be generational churn, that the uh, the old guard had to just die off. And uh, I think we, I've seen a lot of intergenerational change here, in, especially as the rate of change is ramping up. And I'm wondering if you, th- if you see any patterns to, um, how does a group of people sort of all together agree, hmm, I think we were wrong about that?
2: Uh, I think the question is is a valid one, and it's a valid, what shall I say, 19th century question. Okay. I mean, the, the, the point, it seems to me, is, that people find it very difficult, groups of people find it very difficult to admit that they're in the wrong when there's only wrong and right, when there's only two choices. I keep going back to this magic number two. When a group of people find they're in the wrong, it's usually, on a very big scale, as a result of having lost a war. And, you know, how wrong can you get? (laughs) Uh, But in general, the number of essentials in our value systems, it seems to me, are so small that we are required, large, large numbers of us are required to conform in circumstances where if we did not have to, we would not. But in order to function, we have to go there at nine in the morning and work till five and then collect a paycheck and so on and so forth. And when a society runs according to that few, that small number of choices presented to the individual... It tends to become quite important whether you're with the majority or the minority and what you do if you're with the r- wrong side as opposed to the right side and how it is wrong and right become decided at any particular moment, placing you on one side or the other of the argument. I think, to, to move ahead of what Planck said, if God, if I had the nerve, <laughs> I think with the advent of something like uh, the, the nanofabricator, these issues will be swept away. They will be irrelevant it will not matter whether you, we will not belong to groups, let me put it that way. So I think the, the, in, in, the in immensely ramped up number of choices we are going to have really dumps all the stuff that we've been worrying about so far into the dustbin hmm. of history. Hmm.
0: Well, that's um wow that you just uh you just put me in a completely different plane uh that's uh, <laughs> to just say don't that's you put, you put me there <laughs> <laughs> um okay um uh so to 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 sort of bring this in for a landing uh i'd like to explore this idea that you put forth and i feel like this idea is very challenging uh, i um i have had conversations not directly about this idea, but it's sort of on the periphery of it with, uh, academics and, um, um, social scientists and, and, and hard, uh, the, the so the, the quote unquote hard scientist, uh, people in the hard sciences and this idea that you put forth is quite challenging, I think to, to a lot of people. And the idea is that as you close out the day, the universe changed, you discuss how Western culture is very comfortable with change and, um, other cultures often, um, are just as comfortable with a more static, more fixed view of reality. And you talk about how the because of this um, way we tend to reinvent ourselves and redefine ourselves. That many of the permanent values that uh, we've we've held, you've, you've, you mentioned this earlier, talking about you know whether it's humeric the humeric model of medicine or you know the um, geocentric. Universe, or our spheres, or whatever these—all these models that we held as models of reality have shifted, and with them have shifted many of our um, even religious concepts have had to update themselves. And so, you you bring this together and you say that in in this way, discovery isn't uh, really discovery, but it's invention. And I think that's the very challenging idea for many people. Uh, using your own words, you, you say that um, you you say you ask, can there be any permanent or unchanging values or standards? And is knowledge just what we decided is, is the universe, in other words, are we discovering things or are we inventing things? Uh, are we just, and I'm wondering, um, what are your, what are your thoughts now on this, on this principle? And, and, um, if you can offer any solace for people who find that extremely challenging, what, what do you have to say about it?
2: Uh, I'm not sure how much I can help. I, <laughs> I know that if I, whoever he was, I forget who said it, if I kick the wall, it hurts. So there are certain irreducible realities, which are physical in nature, I suppose, um, that we can be fairly confident about. I mean, I'm not flying off the planet because Newton was right. Um, I need to eat or I will no longer be here. So there are some irreducible realities. I think the, the games we play with our minds are where the discovery and the innovation goes on, or the invention goes on. And that is, I think, that sometimes they go hand in hand. Sometimes we discover something that allows us to invent. Uh, Primarily, I suppose, in in terms of hard sciences, when we discover that it is possible to see tiny objects, we are able to invent uh, 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 a microscope. I mean, I think the first microscope is invented as a result of some guy who's in a draper in, in the clothing business, and he's looking at at fibres of silk or linen, to see how good they are. And this idea moves into seeing other things that are much smaller. Once you do that, you then have to decide what to do with the instrument, and you point it somewhere. And where you point it, I think, is probably the innovative, the invention bit. You know, Before, I don't want to spoil the story, so I'll tell it the other way around. This guy in Holland apparently goes up to the prince and says, I've got something that you can use to see what the guys on the other side are doing in great detail and shoot your guns at where they don't know that you know they are because you've seen them from a distance. And I think the prince says something like, go away and bring back binoculars. Anyway, the next thing we know about a year later, Galileo's got one. And early on, as far as I understand it, the idea was, here you are, you merchants, use this thing, and you can see ships coming into port way before anybody else knows they're coming. They are carrying your cargo of silk, so you can put your prices up because it's going to be here soon. And then he does something that I think I would call an invention. He points it where you're not supposed to point it. He pointed at the moon and at the sky, which at the time is supposed to be unchanging, and so there's nothing up there to see. And what he sees blows everything away. And the whole whole of modern astronomy begins. He sees mountains on the moon. He sees a planet going around, a star going around another star, which means there's a planet going around a planet, the moons of Jupiter. So I think probably what I meant when I said what I said in that book was that that we move ahead or, or sideways or backwards, whatever you want to call it, by dint of using these two techniques together, discovery and then the use of what we discover to invent and then... And then on from there. But everything we do in that sense has a ripple effect. So, uh, you know, one of the things that Mounted on the Moon tells you is that Aristotle is wrong. And if Aristotle is wrong, everything is wrong. And that throws up the whole question of what knowledge is and blah, blah, blah. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
0: I I just uh, – I love it so much. And um, it, it is uh, – it, thinking in this way thinking connectively and the the opportunities i think that your app is going to afford people and uh i'm going to i will certainly uh include links uh to everything people need to uh know so they can contribute to making this app a reality i think that uh thinking connectively will um uh and it it really will help us to Wrangle the uh, the anxieties that come from um, being surprised, uh, finding our predictions aren't as what what we thought they were, uh, being uh, discovering that we might be quote unquote wrong about certain things. I think that there's a there's a lot of value existentially. uh, If I would if I if I if if I may uh, go that far with it, there's a lot of a value existentially to um, thinking connectively and beyond just the discovery that you're going to get from uh, finding how ideas go between one another in the cross-disciplinary work. So I think this is a really fantastic project that you're putting forward. And it's such an extension of your philosophy and your work and your, in your career. I really hope people contribute to it. And um, I really, really, really thank you for coming on the show and telling us all about it.
2: A great pleasure. And, you know, the, the alternate, as I said, is jump out the window. We don't want to do that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> thank you so much, James Burke. Okay.
2: Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I will have links to everything over at the show notes at the website, youarenotsosmart.com, or the show notes within SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get this podcast. Those links, by the way, to the Kickstarter, they are jbconnectionsapp.com or knowledgediscoveries.com, or just go to Kickstarter and search for it. You can find more podcasts like this one at boingboingpodcast.com, previous episodes at youarenotso smart.com, boing boing, and SoundCloud, Stitcher, and iTunes. Follow us at Facebook over at Facebook. It's just You Are Not So Smart. And on Facebook, there are many, many people there that are ready to talk about all the stuff that we've talked about in this show and all the other shows. Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I'm at David McCraney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music is Banjo-pocalypse. Go to you're not so Smart.com for transcripts and cookie recipes and all the rest. Hey, by the way, you remember the cricket thing from the very beginning that you thought was weird? Here's some more stuff about that. Listen, try this stuff out. It just tastes like chocolate bars, except here's the thing. They're made with cricket flour, and it's one of the most sustainable and nutritious protein sources in the world. EXO, E-X-O. They are making tasty and nutrient-dense cricket protein bars made with only natural ingredients made by three-star Michelin chefs. Good for the environment. Good for you. Head to exoprotein.com slash so smart to try four different bars for less than $10. That's exoprotein.com slash so smart. E-X-O-protein.com slash so smart. Oh, hey, you're still here. You know, I always liked it when albums sometimes had secret things after all of the uh, music stopped for a minute. That's what this is. And I wanted to include this last thing here. I had no idea how to put this in the show, but it's just so interesting because James Burke and I, we were talking about stuff before the show started. And we were just kind of talking about things that were happening in the news. And we ended up talking about how unpredictable things are and were and have been and continue to be. And he had this one thing to say about predictability and, and how it related to social media. And here it is. And after it's over, that's all. Thanks for sticking around.
2: I mean, one of the things that interests me about, about the way the whole electronic developments of the last 20 years are beginning to affect us in terms of stuff like tweeting and, and the entire sort of social media thing is this so-called electronic exhaust, which we are increasingly all leaving behind. I mean, every time you use your credit card, anytime you do almost anything nowadays, you leave some kind of marker behind you. And algorithms are being developed, are already being developed, by major stores to look at those exhaust trails and see what trends might be uh, uh, to the advantage of the users. And, for example, one of them has discovered that if there's going to be a uh, a hurricane warning, the two best things you can put out on the shelves and make them very available are flashlights, okay, no surprise, and And Pop-Tarts. And they did this, and they sold a zillion and, and if you if you ramp that up in terms of really big data to really major org algorithms, which are not that far away, you're going to have a way of getting the public's opinion without too much danger, without a big hullabaloo, but finding out exactly really what they want.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program I have recommended better help to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns. And I recommended therapy, I'd never gone to therapy before. And this helped. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what if our time was unlimited how would you use it and the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing what is important to you what is that thing that deserves to take that slot that precious time how do you make that a priority Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month that's better H-E-L-P, dot com, slash Y-A-N-S-S.